Hi, this is Marlene, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found on MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Go to MarlenePardo.com for information on new book releases. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and can also be listened to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests on the show. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit Strange Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or find us on Blogspot. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi, everybody. This is Marlene with Stories of the Supernatural. How's everybody doing? Good? I'm good. I'm good. I know somebody's going to, somebody's out there's going to go, well, so Marlene, what's happened to your, to your chicken video that you promised us? I have, I'm, I'm going to, I haven't shot it yet. I've, I've lost two of my, I lost two of my hens to, there's an owl out there that um, always waits, you know, for that chicken that decides that it's going to go walk, walk about after dark. And I've lost two of my chickens and I am, that's what's kind of gotten in the way, really. And then, of course, even though the show's a little bit staggered, preparing for Thanksgiving. So for all of you, we'll hear it after the fact. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> but yeah, but I promise I'll, I'll get it done. It's just that, um, you know, things like that. Also, I brought my grandson up to live with me. So I've been running around getting him situated. Um, yeah, grandma to the rescue. Yay. Yeah, he's uh he's he grew up in South Florida, so this is a big change for him, much slower. But uh yeah, um we got him situated and he got his a job already and he's set to go. So there we go. And anyway, guys, uh, oh, and let me talk to you about uh, the, the show sponsor. It's Plan to Stay Safe. And basically what they do is they offer inexpensive products that keep you safe, whether it's a personal alarm, motion detectors that you could place, let's say, hang on a door if you go traveling. Uh, they have uh, keychain, uh, pepper sprays, things that you can carry with you that are inexpensive and, and they're non-lethal. And basically, like I said, um, you could take them, you could have them at home. They also have Wi-Fi cameras that you can switch around that you can carry with you if you travel or you have them at home, nanny cams. They also have a line of um, hidden cameras. You know, if you, again, maybe you have a babysitter taking care of your child and you want to make sure that this person, if you don't know that, that much about them, their background, that your child is being uh, basically taken care of appropriately. Uh, they offer all those products. So go and visit them. Plantostaysafe.com. Again, plantostaysafe.com. Now let's get on to the good part. The good part is the guest for tonight. This is the first time that he's been on the show. I'm very thrilled to have him. 
and his name is Father Maximus McIntyre. Okay, and I'm going to say very little about his bio because we're going to get into it more when he, he, we speak to him directly. But uh, he worked he worked alongside the Warrens. Okay, and of course, everybody who, who wasn't aware of who the Warrens were, when they saw the Conjuring films, they became more aware of who the, the Warrens were, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, he worked with them. Um, now, his experiences at that time convinced him that the paranormal was real and ultimately led him on a journey that led him to the priesthood. Now, obviously, the many, many years have passed and the Warrens both have passed away. And um, he's worked uh, or evaluated over 1,500 cases of purported paranormal activity and demonic oppression. And uh, help me welcome Father Maximos. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you tonight? Very good. Excellent. Thank you Father for Maximos. Me. <laughs> <laughs> people, people in my audience knows because I have a bunch of chickens that I have about maybe 40 or 50 of them. And I call it Chicken Kingdom. And it's, <laughs> and it's like, you know, everybody follows me where all my things are. And, uh, but um, anyway, um, I'm going to ask you what I asked all my guests. How did you uh, end up working with the, with Ed and Lorraine Warren? Absolutely. Years ago? Well, so I first discovered them. It was probably about the 1992 timeframe. Um, of course, back then, we didn't have the, the paranormal craze that we have now. But when I was young and I was starting in high school, uh, either yourself or many of your viewers might remember the show called Sightings. Yes, of course. One of the old ghost shows in paranormal and so forth. Um, that's where I first actually discovered them is seeing some of their uh, casework on that particular show. Um, as a kid, like anytime Unsolved Mysteries, Sightings, any of these shows came on, I was very, very interested. Um, I didn't know if I actually believed in the phenomena and these types of things, but I, it always appealed to me as a kid. And I remember about the 1992 timeframe uh, seeing them on particular cases on sightings. Now, fast forward about four years to 1996, and I started college at Western New England College in Springfield, Massachusetts. And like many of the, the college communities around Halloween time, they have different activities and, um, you know, their campus resource boards and they bring in, uh, you know, movie nights and all this stuff. Well, I saw a flyer in the campus uh, activities area saying that they were having uh, ghost hunters coming to speak. And it was a flyer that said Ed and Lorraine Warren. And I recognized the name right away, obviously from uh, the television series and so forth. And I had seen them, I think, over the couple of years, maybe on different programs, um, I had not read their books at that time, um, but it still it fascinated me. So I asked one of my friends, I said, this sounds kind of interesting. We should go to this lecture tonight. And um, I did. And I was really amazed at uh, the content of their lecture. It wasn't just like a quick presentation. It was probably at least three hours. Uh, they showed um, all kinds of pictures. Um, they had some audio files and they even played uh, some VHS material on a television that they had there. Um, and I was really blown away. I think they were uh, incredible speakers. It was fascinating material. And I kind of left there kind of wanting to know more. Um, I kind of put it on ice. I didn't really do anything with that night. Um, but then about two years later, after seeing them again at a lecture, um, I had switched my major to English literature 
and I was doing a lot of writing and trying to write for uh, the school newspaper and other newspapers. And I noticed that they had a bi-monthly journal on the paranormal case studies that they worked on. Um, at first, I simply reached out to them as a writing endeavor, not necessarily to get involved with uh, the casework or anything like that immediately. Um, I didn't expect, honestly, to hear anything back. And I was very surprised when I got a phone call from Lorraine Warren. <laughs> so wow. It blew my mind. <laughs> um, okay. I was like, okay, I didn't expect that. <laughs> you know, I'd sent them um, in my inquiry and proposal, a few writing samples, things like that. Uh, she loved them. Uh, she consulted with Ed, and they actually invited me down to their home in Monroe, Connecticut, to talk about this. Um, I didn't know what to think. I had met them at a lecture. Um, I had gone to the museum in passing once, but I didn't really know them. So I had a chance to actually sit down in their home at this point after the invite um, and talk about their casework. And, uh, you know, I was very interested as a college student in what they did. And I explained my situation with college, and I'd like to maybe volunteer to do some writing. And Ed, I was really surprised, uh, anticipating me coming down, actually had hand-typed on his typewriter a small book proposal. So wow. I came in the door thinking, well, this is probably just niceties, and we're going to talk, and maybe nothing will come out of it. To him actually saying, you know, I loved your samples. Um, we're looking to do another book, and I think, you know, you could be the guy to do this. So Ed kind of took me to the side. We went into the living room. Uh, Lorraine went off and we talked for, you know, quite some time. And he was telling me about uh, the cases he'd like to cover in this book. Um, one was the legend of Hannah Crana, which is a witch in that area. Um, the ghost of Mrs. Brown, uh, their work at Union Cemetery, uh, maybe get into a few of the cases and so forth. And before I left that day, he said, for your first assignment, he said, I would like you to write up a sample chapter uh, based on our experiences in the famous Amityville horror case, uh, but not so much the case itself. But when we left and came home, the encounter we had within our own home as a result of that case. And he wanted to see what I could do with that. So that was my, I guess you could say, first writing assignment for them. Um, I was floored, obviously. I didn't expect that. Uh, I went back to school uh, about 125 miles away and I remember telling my friends and they were very excited. Some of them that knew I was following their work and reading their books and, and so forth. Um, from there, I did write a sample chapter. Um, things kind of got slow with the book and Lorraine asked me to come back down uh, to their home. And she said, you know, can we put a little, uh, things on hold for a little bit? I'm having some trouble getting, um, you know, the bi-monthly journal, getting articles written for it. Can you assist me with that for the time being? And, you know, we kind of put the book on ice for a little bit and, it was awesome. I got to sit there and go through the case files with Lorraine, uh, look at the photographs, uh, some of the tape wow. recordings, uh, the correspondence there. They're typed up reports, um, handwritten letters by families. And they said, you know, why don't you take some of these and write up some, you know, sample um, little reports and things like this that we can maybe publish in the journal. And that really excited me. I was like, this is, this is awesome. Um, you know, I didn't expect that either. And, over the course from um, probably the last article I wrote was probably 2002. So for about a four-year period, I submitted a lot of articles. Not all of them were published, of course. Um, there was one journal in 1999. I think every article I wrote. <laughs> so okay. it was a really interesting experience. But through all this, you know, I wanted to know, all right, is this real? Is this, 
I, I know they're not lying. I know that they're dealing right. with real people, real circumstances. Um, I was nominally Roman Catholic at the time, um, mm -hmm. you know, teetering on belief and you're young and you question everything. And I'm looking mm -hmm. at all sorts of belief systems. And I really wanted to know if the stuff was real. So eventually I kind of uh, asked, could I start going on cases or assisting or jumping with other researchers? And Lorraine was all too happy to make that happen. And it valid uh, validated for me that a lot of the cases they work on, this stuff was happening. Um, you know, a lot of cases and stuff, I mean, a lot of stuff gets screened out. There's a mm -hmm. lot of times it's a wild goose chase. You could go to a home every day for a month and nothing's going to happen. You collect the story and go from there. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of these cases were pretty heavy duty because by the time I got to the Warrens or their nephew, John Zaffis, um, mm -hmm. who I did most of the cases with, um, became very good friends with him. Uh, still to this day, he's like family to me. Um, you know, I got to see there's, there's a reality to this. And my focus was at that point, not so much more on the writing, but it was on really assisting the families. It wasn't even like about the thrill or trying to get right. evidence or psychic photography. Um, it was really to help those people in need because I saw that they were turned away sometimes from the church or yeah. uh, counseling or psychology didn't really help. Maybe there was another reason this stuff was happening. Um, so unfortunately, if we fast forward a couple of years to 2001, um, that's when poor Ed collapsed. Um, he got okay. very, very sick. His heart stopped. Um, I believe it was probably March or April 2001. And he never really fully recovered his faculties. Um, okay. Lorraine did carry on in the work. But from then on, it was really um, their blood nephew, John Zaffis. So John Zaffis, his mother, was Ed Warren's twin. Really? So, he, so that's, you know, he had an intricate link, you know, through the family, mm -hmm. but also... He was a seasoned researcher under, under the tutelage of his his uncle and aunt at that time. So for a couple of years, really, John Zaffis um, and myself handled all those warrants cases for the most part. But John also had tons of his own cases. So I really got further into it, more of a crash course as time went on. Um, I actually, under my birth name, Brian McIntyre, um, not my baptismal priest name, um, I wrote John Zaffis's first book, Shadows of the Dark. Uh, about 20 years ago. He didn't release it till about 2004, I believe. Uh, but during uh, all that researching with him, um, he liked my writing samples and things I was doing for the journal. So I wrote his book. But unfortunately, with Ed and his collapse in 2001, uh, my book project with the Warrens really came to a screeching halt. It was okay. kind of backburnered to work on the journal, you know, and then it just kind of that kind of solidified kind of the end of that. Um, mm -hmm. But I did carry on primarily in the casework till about 2005. Um, I started to feel more of a draw to ministry and things like that, probably about 2003. And by about 2005, I really left the, um, I guess you'd say, the cyclical research end and, mm -hmm. and joined, um, you know, I got more serious about my priestly studies and all that and left that world, if you will, of research but have continued on in the area of resolution of this stuff. Okay. Um, so I've, you know, my, my perspective of course has changed over the years. Um, I'm much more, uh, you know, I was never into the occult or anything like that, but sometimes I think when you do a lot of the psychic photography and the EVPs and all that stuff, you could be opening yourself to something unwanted. Sure. So I became much more conservative in my, my view of the paranormal, probably about that 2003, 2004 timeframe. Um, 
as I left the research end and studied to become a clergyman and, and made those strides, uh, to this day, I still handle several cases a year of uh, these things because people know my past or the occasional interview like this that I do, mm -hmm. um, or just, you know, speaking, I've had a few public speaking engagements, but it's been fairly low key, but a lot of cases, um, either myself or the different researchers during my tenure uh, screened out or processed probably well over 1,500 cases. And I've probably actually worked physically as a result, now approaching about 250 cases in person. Um, wow. So it's it's still one of those things. I mean, this year it's been pretty quiet, but I've still worked on some cases um, on rare occasion as a, as a clergyman, um, not only blessing homes, uh, but you might have to perform exorcism. Um, mm -hmm. very small percentage of what we do as clergymen, but there are cases where that's necessary. Um, okay. Sometimes it's simply instructing them. So that's kind of a crash course at the beginning of my my uh, discovery of the Warrens and uh, starting to work with them, writing for them, starting to work on the cases, especially with, with John and where I became, I drew that like line in the sand and kind of jumped over to the, the clerical world, if you will. I have so many questions for you, but I want to ask you one question, which yeah. from the beginning, and I did not know this, and maybe it was written up. You mentioned that when Ed took you, you know, when that first meeting that you had with him, that one of the stories he wanted to include was what happened to them after the Amityville horror investigation. What Absolutely. happened? I didn't know that happened. So I believe, if I recall, it's probably uh, recounted in some fashion in um, their book they did with Gerald Brittle, the demonologist, back in 1980. Okay. Um, so I believe there's this, a mention of in there. It's been a while since I've read the book, but I'm pretty sure it's in there. Um, so essentially what they said happened is after working on that case, when they mm -hmm. came home from Long Island, um, Lorraine was up reading a book upstairs. And the way their house was set up, uh, many people now, especially because of Annabelle and all this, they know they had the occult museum there where they store their artifacts and their case files. So this is down through like a passageway and it goes out to what used to be their former art studio, which they made into Ed's office with his cassettes and case files and stuff, uh, his books. And then they had all their kind of artifacts that they collected through the years from cases. So Ed was working on, I assume maybe writing up case files or whatever he was doing late at night. And Lorraine was upstairs reading and Ed heard um, down the end of the passageway. Uh, it's a very heavy wooden door. I still kind of remember it. And it makes almost like a, a booming sound when it hits. And he heard that noise and he figured Lorraine was probably bringing him a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, something like that, but she never appeared from there. Uh, he said that the light in his office dimmed to almost like a, a dim candle. It became very cold. And there was, of course, kind of that stereotypical odor that you smell in the uh, you know, the presence of the demonic, probably like rotting eggs, sulfur, kind of a disgusting smell. And Ed claimed that when this was all occurring, he became very nervous because obviously working all those cases, he knew something was happening. Right. Um, and he claims that almost like a dark form almost like a cyclone type shape came in through the passageway into the museum. And I assume probably by the office. Right. Um, and he said there was, it was a menacing sound. It was obviously the, the smells, all this stuff. And it was something physical, physical and tangible. that was like dark and darker than the black of night. 
and having holy water close to him, he reached into the drawer um, or on his desk. I can't remember. It's going, going back over 20 years since I wrote it up. So, and he threw holy water at it and it ceased. And I believe he hit it again with holy water and it slowly made its way out. Now, at the very same time, Lorraine upstairs sitting with their pets. They were animal lovers, always had cats and dogs. As she's reading, something came into the room as she's reading at the same time. And my understanding is that she made the sign of the cross, realizing this is something's not right. And heard kind of a noise like um, like a banging. Uh, I think she claimed it was like the banging like on metal. It just sounded really odd. And when she made the sign of the cross, it kind of recoiled and, and left the bedroom area. And that's when Ed came up the back stairway into the bedroom, into the bedroom. And, you know, they corroborated their stories and couldn't believe what happened. So they believe that that manifestation was probably tied to their involvement uh, of, you know, recently in Amityville. And it's something that they were very adamant happened and moved them and showed the, the seriousness of perhaps what was going on in the Amityville case. So that was what he had me write me up for the first sample chat. Let me ask you, because sometimes, I mean, I, I've heard about it as much as I'm mean, a guy that's one of the best known, I mean, well publicized and, you know, some, I know a lot of the stuff that's surrounding that case is, you know, not accurate, Yeah. but sometimes it makes you wonder because, you know, of course, everybody's aware of the Lutzes and what happened to them and that they ran out of the house, but considering what happened there, do you think that whatever was there is what, I don't know how to, because prior to the DeFeos being there, I know that that house had been there for a very long time. Yeah. If it was something that came with the DeFeos or something that, how can I say? I know that there was a lot of dysfunction within that family, but how sometimes if there was something already dark there, it will egg it on. How's that? It that will uh, aggravate it, uh, a dysfunction to result, unfortunately, in what happened. Yeah, um, did they ever tell you if they thought that that was something that was there even before the Lutzes, you know, ran out of the house? They they believe um, a lot of people disagree with it, but they believe that um, that was possibly Native American uh, burial ground or a tribal area beforehand. Mm -hmm. I know there was research done, and I think some of the articles that that made that known disappeared from the historical society in Amityville during all this. Um, really? so it's kind of like that's a little interesting. Okay, so yeah, it is right. Yeah, what a coincidence. Um, I think that obviously you have the, the, the atrocious circumstance of the DeFeo murders. Mm -hmm. And my my thought, and Ed and Lorraine spoke about this, and this makes sense to me, is that you know, George and Kathy, when they moved into the Lutzes moved into the home, um, I'm not saying they were into the occult or anything like that. I don't know right. that. But I think they were experimenting with like transcendental right. meditation, I've heard through all that stuff. Right. Probably the perfect storm of all these different things. Um, you know, I, even in our in our church literature, we have history where there's a place that has a stigma and demonic activity, mm -hmm. and people go in and bless it, and it's almost like uh, something inhabits that dwelling, if you will. Right. So it kind of made sense to me that it could be possible it didn't just happen when the Lutzes moved in. It could have been during the DeFeos. It could have been before that. I don't think yeah, but of all the people, much. the worst perhaps that could have bought that house was the Lutzes if they were dabbling <laughs> on the side. Exactly. Some type of occult stuff. It was like, of all, it was like, <laughs> oh, here we go. You, you never know. if you, And if you want to look at it where if there was something, 
how can I say intelligent or malevolent? It almost like let's make sure they're the ones that we need in here. <laughs> Could be the perfect storm of just yeah. you know just making it happen. I think a lot of this is not random. It happens with a purpose. Right. I have no doubt that um, something is intelligent and could orchestrate. Um, you know, I've always been a little bit personally leery of the ambulance case because of, mm -hmm. you know, the distortions and the, uh, yeah. the movie and the books blow things out of proportion and you have people that are contradicting one another. Um, but for me, what's interesting is, you know, I, I, the Warrens never told me to fudge anything in writing and make stuff up. Right. They are very honest. I get to look at their case files I worked on some of their cases where the public will never know about it. It's just kind of like your standard case. Um, and there was never any embellishment or anything like that. Um, I can't speak for Amityville because obviously I don't, I don't think I was even born when Amityville hit. <laughs> I was born right. in the late seventies. So, um, you know, I obviously had no involvement with that. Um, but for me, one thing that's interesting is um, I actually know um, you might know the name Laura DeDeo, who's yes. Yes. of course very much involved uh, she was brought in the Warrens into that case. She was involved in the news agency and so forth. Um, I know her personally. You know, we've had dinner, we've had lunch, um, we've spoken in person, spoken on the phone. And I love her because she's very much like she could be like a lawyer, a college professor, a psych, uh, psychic researcher, reporter. She's a very dynamic woman, very intelligent, very analytical. And I think she has the ability to see when people are lying or not. She, you know, just by interviewing them. And I asked her what she really thought about all this once when we were uh, conversing. Um, and she said, you know, she thinks that something really happened there. Um, she didn't experience anything during that televised you know, mm -hmm. seance in the 70s. Um, but the fact that it was not a movie or a book, it was just like kind of another case. And they left everything, like the deed to the house, wedding pictures, provisions, jewelry. They fled. And... Right. One of the things, you know, she said, and she's gone on record saying this, so I don't mind saying it. She went back. She had the keys to the house. And I don't remember why she went back, but she brought her, I believe it was a German shepherd, and she went alone to the house. And she went, I believe it was during the day, and she went in the house, and I guess it's that, uh, you know, the foyer and where the stairs go up. And that's okay. where the cameraman supposedly had uh, heart palpitations and something wasn't right. And you had the sewing room up there where, you know, supposedly the demonic entity would appear as Jody the pig and things like this. She said that when she walked in the house, um, her dog got very, very defensive and protective, looking up that stairway, growling, okay. all his hair standing up, like something was there. Okay. And to her, I mean, she said that and, you know, she can't say, she says it's not necessarily proof of anything, but it resonated with me when she told me that because she's not one to really jump to conclusions if something's haunted or not, unless there's really evidence. Uh, she's extremely credible in my book uh, and an incredible, incredible person. So I thought that was interesting. And I, I believe that testimony more than I'd ever believe, say like what the Lutz has said and, you know, the embellishments by the the authors and stuff. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's one of those cases that will go down in infamy, but I think right. so many you know, contradictive, contradictive statements and people that say it's a hoax, people that say that it isn't. I don't know if we'll ever know the full truth of that case. The only thing I think of that case that has puzzled me, because I know like, the, like you said, so many things are thrown in there that, you know, it's like, what's how, how, what is true or half true or exaggerated is the part I can't understand is that when the DeFeo murders took place in a residential area, nobody heard all these shots going off. That's you, a very good point. You would think just one shot, if you live in a nice, which it looked like a nice residential area, 
you would think one shot every somebody, especially in the in the middle of the night, somebody or several people are gonna wake up and go, Hey, did you hear that? Did you hear that? And yeah, if you have several, yeah, that's the only part I was like, man, that's really weird. Yeah, Why? that's what I wonder. I, I mean, I don't know the answer, but I wonder if, if right. there's toxicology reports where they, you know, were they drugged, or is it just simply, you know, I think it was a Marlin rifle. Um, and I mean, right. obviously, I mean not not just one shot but several shots you think somebody would have probably heard it yes and i know where the amityville house is i've, I've been on long island many times um i was on a case in long island with john zaffis and he actually drove by the house to show me where it was back when i was you know in my 20s and um mm-hmm. we were working a case about 20 minutes from there and the houses are pretty close to one another so it's not like right. it's in the farmland so that is that's an interesting point and and i i tell everybody i live where i live now is I was born and raised in Miami, but I moved up to North Florida and I live in a very rural area of this town. It's a population of 5,000 and all the properties here, I have a, I'm on four acres and everybody's on similar. But if a gunshot goes off here, you hear it. Oh, yes. <laughs> and we're, you know, my point being that even as spaced out as this area is, as far as habitation, somebody just one shot, you hear it. A couple of shots, absolutely you hear it, which is yeah. a matter of fact that we hear it's kind of common. <laughs> But my point being, you do hear it. So I'm thinking, I can't understand how if you're in bed, hopefully, you know, got, uh, you know, shots going off at night is not a common thing. That's Why nobody ever responded? And 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 then apart. And the thing is, I read about another. Um, and if and if you want to tag it under maybe something weird or in the super supernatural side, there was another a family annihilation case in Ohio, in the. 70s, eight, no, it was in the 70s as well. Same thing. This gentleman, real quick, basically killed all his nephews, nieces, brother, sister-in-law, and mom. Oh in the middle of the afternoon. And nobody, in the same thing, in the vicinity of residential homes, nobody heard the shots. He sat there for two hours. He was the one that finally called the police oh to God. turn himself in. So when I see these comparisons, like this is so, it's almost like, I don't know when evil's being perpetrated, they put the cone of silence. I I, I don't know. I think it's very unusual. It is very unusual. But um, into, and I'm going to ask because I did paranormal investigations back in the night, since the 1990s. And I tell everybody back then, (laughs) and exactly like what you said, back then, by the time they got around to calling somebody, you could tell these people were like pulling their hair out. They were, they were scared. They didn't know what else to do. There was a stigma attached to it. In other words, not like now. Exactly. I tell everybody now somebody hears a noise and everybody runs out and sleeps in the car because they're absolutely convinced it's a ghost. <laughs> Back then, people would call their plumber, their electrician, uh, their handyman, their landlord, depending. Like, what is that? You know, like they would try to figure out a regular uh, mundane reason why whatever was happening. Finally, you know, it trickled down. And even then they were very like, I can't believe it. And, you know, when they reached out for help. And it sounds like you've noticed the difference because of the advent of all these paranormal shows where everybody automatically jumps the gun. Absolutely. I think since, you know, especially since, uh, you know, Ghost Hunters in 2003, 2004, when that came out, and then the explosion of, you know, the copycat shows. And, um, you know, now obviously we have, um, you know, I'm aware of a lot of what goes on a lot of the conferences and it's, it's very much, uh, a mainstream thing now so it doesn't have oh, that yeah. stigma anymore it's more accepted in the open 
um, you know, where there's a ghost hunting group and it seems like every town now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Before it was like, you know, if you told, you know, somebody, I'm going to pull up to your house and a van full of people and they're going to come out and they all have t-shirts <laughs> saying, they go, no, you know, don't do that. Ah, my neighbors, you know, everybody was like, no, that, that's the last thing they wanted was like, no, no, no. You're going to be, as a matter of fact, they were like very insistent. This is going to be private, right? You're not going to talk to anybody about this, right? Absolutely. They were very much. And, and people yes. were more skittish. And oh, by yeah. the time you got there, I mean, there were a, a lot of these cases that were very, very serious. They're at their yes. wits end. They don't know where else to turn. No, no, no. And I hate to say it. I'm not going to say all the time, but a lot of times they had gone to clergy. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them were churchgoers and they went to the person you would think they would go to for a spiritual problem if, because that's, and they kind of like, they weren't turned away, but they were minimized. How's that? I think that's you know? very fair. I, I saw that a lot, um, especially because now, now I'm on the other side and now I'm clergyman. Right. Before I wasn't. And a lot of those cases where uh, they would turn to their minister, their priest, their rabbi, right. almost like that clergyman or, or, you know, anybody involved would just kind of, shoo them away or say, oh, it's probably psychological or yeah, you're afraid yeah. and they didn't know what to do. They, they weren't sure how to even yeah. handle it. Yes. Um, yes. I saw that a lot. And that's why a lot of the, the casework would, uh, if you had to get a, a priest or someone involved and the family's contact would not help them, um, people like the Warrens or John Zaffis would have mm -hmm. those clergy people that would go into those homes to help those people. Right. Right. And I tell some I hate to say it, but I think sometimes, I'm not going to say all the times, maybe the clergy themselves, I, I tell them, it's not that they didn't believe you, it's they were scared, but they didn't know how to tell you. I think Look, so too. I think it's a I'm, fair I'm, I'm supposed to know what to do in this situation, but in truth, I'm just as scared as you are, just in case that what you're telling me oh, definitely. is the truth. And, and I imagine that clergy, after a while, you realize, is you, you know how to differentiate between somebody that's maybe having a mental health problem, delusional. Yeah. Or maybe even schizophrenic, you know, versus somebody you could tell sincerely that they're coming to you for help because they don't understand what's going on, and you're like, oh no, not that. In our in our faith tradition, the the Orthodox Church, being really the most ancient of of uh, Christian faiths, if you will, tracing mm -hmm. it back to Christ Himself and the apostles. This is I don't want to say it's commonplace, but we accept it. We understand that Christ came in our tradition in the first place to defeat the work of the evil one to defeat the work of the demons uh, to defeat sin, sickness, and ultimately death. So this is the whole reason why Christ came in the first place. So it makes right. sense that the church would do work against the evil um, because that's what Christ did. That's, that's our commission to spread the good news, the gospel. And this is a part of it. And of course, most people will not have, you know, the paranormal, paranormal conditions that we see in homes, like you right. see in the movies, but everybody to some degree will have temptations or yes. uh, spiritual temptations and things like this. And, you know, on occasion, these, it's not necessarily from the self. It could be thoughts from something that's demonic trying sure. to, um, you know, the thoughts is probably where most people will, will have this type of temptation. Um, but yeah, definitely in, in my, my work, you know, I've seen those cases where, all right, things are manifesting, things are moving bureaus, like large objects, um, and it's a dire circumstance for these families. Some of the ones that resonated the most with me is when you have families that perhaps 
won't even take a shower or go to the bathroom by themselves. They want somebody to stay in there with them. Um, they sleep on mattresses in the living room all together because when they're separated, stuff happens to them individually and it's terrifying. Yes. Those are the types of cases I saw that I was like, my heart went out to these folks. And I think I really started to see more of the, the research and as more of like a ministry. And I think it really did push and catapult me in, into ordained ministry, um, not to, to be you know, an exorcist per se, but right. to, to, to really, uh, you know, it, it really solidified my faith. And I saw that in these circumstances, a lot of times when they brought in the clergyman or they got back in their faith, these things would dissipate and go away. Um, and it, in, in a sense, proved to me that there are truly demonic spirits out there. There's other things, of course, that we don't know what it is. Um, there's, of course, psychological maladies. There's mm -hmm. Uh, total natural explanations that are being misconstrued as supernatural, preternatural. Of course, the, there's things that run the gamut. Um, but some of those cases, especially I'd say with John Zaffis, he he received a lot, a lot of cases constantly. And I mean, I couldn't believe some of the stuff these families would go through. And when you go there yourself and you start to experience it and you know it's not just a story um, right. you know, they're, they're getting the evaluation from the doctors. They're taking all the logical uh, routes to try to prove or disprove what it is you know it, it came to the point where sometimes it was really only prayer that would take away this stuff and for me that was a big eye-opener you know what i was reading some of something about your bio and i wanted to expand on that because i've talked about it before that you know especially with some of these paranormal shows depending on what the angle is they have somebody whether it's clergy or ghostbuster or demonologist come in clap a thunder hey psh, we've got rid of your ghost or whatever it was and then they think that that's okay. Life's back to normal. And I tell every, I've told my audience and they're going to say, Marlene, you're saying that again. It's that if you think that that's it, you have to continue in that cycle of whatever your religious observations are. Sure. In other words, you can't go back to where you were before because it's almost like you're kind of a little bit earmarked. Yeah. You have to continue if, you know, maybe prayers, um, Whatever it is, uh, you have to continue it. It's like, don't let, let's say, somebody like yourself do the heavy lifting, and then that's it. I'm off the hook. I'm done. Yeah, All right, that's it. Personal responsibility. The family yes. is part of the solution. Uh, the clergyman is not just an exterminator. <laughs> um, Thank you, least, my <laughs> God, that you're saying that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the way it works. Um, yes. You know, if, if something is there, why is it there? And sometimes you can trace back and, and I don't fault people. I, I, mean, yeah, I, don't, I know that. I, know I don't that. ride them hard on this stuff, but sometimes they've done things that bring this stuff in. So they need to leave that door closed. They have to realize they can't meddle and maybe search for these things or try to conjure them. Uh, most people I found do it very uh, benignly. It's I sympathize with them because maybe they lost a loved one and they want to connect with that loved one because uh, they love them so much, they miss them, they're grieving, and they go to the psychic, or they go to, yeah. you know, they, they bring in the Ouija board, or something like that, yes. and they don't know what's, you know, typically, I'm sure, probably nothing responds, but on occasion, I think something demonic will use that as a means to deceive them, they have the open invitation now, they're going to seem like a benign spirit, and now they're going to take advantage of the family, and it's a full-on diabolical siege at that point. Well, you know what? And this is the, oh, my, my, okay. My, my computer's deciding to do its own thing. Um, 
And the reason why I say this is that I think that when people initially go through that scare, what you described, that they they needed help. They were like, oh my God. You know, and I think human beings, after the fact, the fear starts to recede and they kind of start forgetting it. And I tell everybody, I hate to say it, and especially since it's, for lack of a better word, it's glamorized because of the paranormal shows. I tell them, you know what? Once you find yourself in that situation, not only can you not dabble in it, and I say, if you want to be a legend tripper, take a, it's different, <laughs> but you shouldn't even be, in other words, people think, well, I'm not doing it, but I was just there watching. I tell them, don't even be in that vicinity. Like oh, you said, the Ouija board. Girl. Okay. So I wasn't doing the Ouija board. I was just watching them do the Ouija board. It was like, once you found yourself in that, where you needed some type of intercession, from whoever to get rid of what was there, you need to give that whole paranormal thing a wide berth. It's like, I saw, sorry, mm-hmm. you know, because, and the reason why I'm saying this is now mostly, because I was always a freelance investigator. I worked with a research group that worked all of Florida. So I would usually, if they were in South Florida, would go, or if they needed a warm body, you know, some somebody, a team member at the last minute said, I can't make it. Sure. And I would step in and I would go. And um, a lot of times we know you always left uh, with a family, like if you need help, call us back. And even now I get calls from a lot of people that have been for around for a long time, consult in the background. And almost undoubtedly, every time they get a call back from a family or a person that they helped months, a year, two years before, that something's manifesting and they kind of dig, like, tell me the truth. Come on, tell me what happened. Where have you been doing? Where have you gone? Inevitably, that is the point of origin of whatever is starting to manifest again. I found in the casework exactly what you're saying, almost like I see it as they've experienced something. Um, it's perhaps gone. And now there's a void. There's something yes. missing. Yes. And now they instead of filling it with something like their faith and 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 getting involved with their church and so forth they go mm-hmm. back and try to <laughs> do something right. they shouldn't and it comes back and there's actually you know a scriptural admonition it's going to bring more back with it so it's probably going to be more yes. for the yeah. next time yes yes and yes. i tell people i mean if we're going to close that door if you're going to uh get counseling get back into your faith all these mm-hmm. things um you got to let it go you, you cannot look back at it yes. you have to move on because if not, you're going to open yourself up even probably worse than before. And then it's much more difficult to get rid of it. Because like we were mentioning before together, and you you hit the nail on the head too, it's they're part of the solution. The clergy is not an exterminator alone. Mm-hmm. If they're going to you know, uh, renege on their end of the bargain here, I mean, it's going to yes. get worse. And it's very, very difficult to convince people, I think because of what they see on TV, Yes. Um, to just let it go. And it's probably one of the biggest struggles now. Um, mm-hmm. I've worked on a few cases in the last couple of years that almost that has precisely happened. There was, um, it's very rare to do exorcism, um, mostly a house blessing, counseling, right. things like that. that. That will usually take care of things if there's an issue. Um, mm-hmm. There was actually one case where I was called in uh, to bless the person's home. I got the blessing of my hierarch to do so. Um things were very quiet and precisely what you mentioned. I had to do a little digging because they called back probably six months later and what they had done and they did it. They did it. They didn't mean anything by it, but it was the wrong tactic is that 
since things were so quiet, they wanted to know for sure if it was gone. So they brought in the <laughs> team and then they did EVPs and they did a reading and all this stuff to see if anything was there. And then all of a sudden, boom, almost immediately that next week, they got scratches. They were, you know, it, it was more intense and it was very quiet and there's probably nothing there. But by bringing in these groups to try to verify if something was there or not, they opened the door right back up. Oh, sure. And it got so bad that when I was uh, interviewing this woman uh, through all this, keeping in touch, and we were in person, and we were actually having a cup of coffee, there was weird light anomalies that were happening with the electricity and so forth as we were discussing what she was going through. So I said, all right, I, I believe there is something going on again. I mean, this is, it's not mm-hmm. tons of validation, but, you know, it's not too often I sit down randomly with somebody and have this type of phenomenon. Right, going yeah, on. it's like, yeah. So I was like, yeah, all right, something to this. And I, wow. I called my my bishop to get a blessing and um, where they were being scratched and there was mm-hmm. some almost physical attacks happening and mm-hmm. some of the phenomena was happening in the presence of other people they would invite over the home because they were scared. Wow. Um, I was told, yes, they're not possessed, but they're definitely the target. Uh, please perform an exorcism over them. And, um, you know, I, I certainly agreed. And I said, I think it's probably the right course of action. Now, this person, it's obviously much more uh, easy to work with somebody in your belief system because I could uh, give them Holy Communion. I could do all these things. But when mm-hmm. it's kind of outside the belief system, I'm not going to turn people away. I, I love all folks and I want to help everybody, uh, but right. I don't have all pieces of the puzzle to necessarily help them. Um, so I was hoping that the exorcism uh, with the blessing of the bishop would, would certainly work. Uh, this woman was very unchurched. She didn't really understand. She grew up Protestant, but didn't practice. Um, you know, she didn't understand, like, you know, I was wearing like a stole and had no idea what it was or anything like this. Didn't understand, you know, the, you know, the, the table cross that I had standing up and all this. She never heard the prayers before. What I found really interesting is without her knowing, uh, during part of the prayers, I put the stole I was wearing, the priestly stole over her head, and I had a relic in my hands. It's a small cross, and inside the cross is bone fragments of St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil, and St. Saba the Sanctified, and a little sliver from Mount Athos of the true cross of which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was crucified on. And those relics are put into the cross. Now, when I put the stole on her head, I put my hand on her head as well with those relics. And she had no idea. Um, not a lot happened. There was no outburst. There was, there was no uh, fireworks or anything like that. Like okay. see. But it was interesting after the exorcism prayers were read and you know the house had been blessed and all this, she said, I have to ask you a question. Um, as soon as you put that ribbon on my head, meaning the stole, uh-huh. she said, I had this burning, incredible headache. And it just hit me as soon as it touched my head. And I felt this wow. burning going through my body and then out my feet and it stopped. And Ooh. I had to say to myself, I know I can't really prove either way if that truly happens, you know, empirically with science or anything. But it was right. a very interesting testimony that she had, um, not knowing I had the relic and not exactly. knowing that the stole is a, you know, a symbol of the sacred priesthood. And you don't undertake such work without wearing that stole and so forth. Um, so it was a very interesting testimony for me to hear uh, from that person. And then through the follow-up, because you really need to follow up on this stuff over the upcoming mm-hmm. month, 
things were very quiet again. And I think I counseled her in a way uh, to gently tell her, please don't bring back in ghost hunters or psychics. And Mm -hmm. you know, you know, what can happen. And just, you know, you reached out to the church for help. And, you know, of course, we're obliged to help. You can't turn people away. Sure, Uh, sure. So it was one of those weird cases where um, there was a little bit of phenomena that was experienceable by myself or someone else that was there to assist. But it was fairly quiet. And the brunt of phenomena really affected this woman. Um, but it just, it's, it's, I feel so bad for these people and, and there's so much misinformation out there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying, trying to sound like I know it all or I'm triumphant. There's so much gray area and stuff I don't understand, but I do believe that the church, because of its, uh, it's the mystical bride of Christ has the power to do these things because that's what it's commissioned to do. But when you start bringing in, um, you know, people that are untrained or people that are self-appointed or, yes. you know, the ghost hunting groups that, you know, some of them are very good and very sincere, but there's also a lot of charlatans or thrill seekers sure. or, you know, mm-hmm. they don't know what to do if they encounter a mental health crisis. It's not, <laughs> yeah, all these things. And we have to be so careful and, and, you know, I don't put down anybody, but I, I just feel that it's very dangerous. You know, yes. I'm not a psychic. I'm not a clairvoyant. I'm not a parapsychologist. I'm not a ghost hunter. I'm a priest. And mm-hmm. that's the framework that I only feel comfortable working in because I believe that they are healed by the power of Christ. Um, and I think a lot of these other things could exacerbate it and make it worse. Um, oh, yeah. Especially if there's somebody yeah. that doesn't know what they're doing and their heart might be in the right place. That's why I don't want to put them down, but yes. they could stir up something there and even be affected themselves. I, I mean, I've seen uh, ghost hunters and ghost hunting groups that have gotten over their head and now they're affected. So yes. it's like, it's just a scary thing. I think when we delve into the subtle realm of psychic energies, it's very dangerous. I tell people to just stay away from it. Um, you can communicate with God through prayer. You can invoke the saints through prayer. You can pray for your departed loved ones. But when you start venturing into these subtle psychic areas, you don't know what's going to happen, what's going to respond. And I feel it's very, very psychologically and spiritually dangerous. Let me ask you, and I know you mentioned something, was like I said, I read, but I'm going to ask your opinion on this. You know, in some of these shows, I don't know whether it's for the excitement factor, they do what they call either confrontation or provocation. Oh, boy, yes. <laughs> I'd, I've told my audience, and there you go, she goes here, she goes again. I go, do you realize that, especially if you're talking a non-human entity, that's equivalent to an invitation? Absolutely. It's like, was, you really don't know what you're prov- provoking. You're provoking what's there. And, and you're opening yourself up to some type of attack. Yes. You don't have the spiritual authority to be doing that. Yes. So something could respond and be very difficult to, to get rid of in your own life, of course. I tell everybody, I go, you know, and, and I tell because, you know, people say, you know, everybody wants to join these ghost hunting groups and paranormal groups. And I say, you know, you should always look for somebody that's been established for a while. And, you know, and you've got a team leader and they've got rules. And I said, but I said these things, I go, I go, especially men, I'm going to put it on the men because yep. they do that. I go, you know, you might go to a case where there's a supposedly they've identified who the ghost is, but you really don't know if there's a level of non-human entity there that's in the background waiting for somebody to do something stupid like that (laughs) to provoke it or confront it or say, well, hey, you know, you know, have you seen two? Why don't you come and do that to me or some little, little, and it's like, oh. And People I said, don't that's realize. when you hear these ghost hunters go back home and then everything unravels for them because they laid out the welcome mat. 
Yeah, they treat it like almost like a, a zoo or an aquarium where you can look in, but you don't think it's going to be able to get out. Uh -huh. like, no, no, you're getting thrown in with the lions. Like you're not just yes. looking through the glass. Yes. You're you're in yes. there. So yes. you could have some uh, hardships happen to you. Certainly spiritually, I've seen yes. psychologically um, unknown terrors happen to people. Um, so much so that a part of, I went back to school a few years ago to get a master's degree in psychology. And a mm -hmm. lot of it was influenced by this, uh, this realm. Um, okay. There's other areas because of pastoral ministry and, and counseling those with addictions and things like that. Uh, but a lot of it had to do with this as well. And I'm convinced that, I mean, some of the the spiritual maladies and the psychological maladies as a result of these hauntings, if you will, yes. are, are so atrocious. They, they could send somebody to a, a mental health facility. I've seen it. Um, there's no doubt about it. Otherwise, they're healthy and happy and pretty put together. They get involved in this work, this realm. Uh, they push the limits or invoke things. You know, they provoke it, which is just conjuring, as you mentioned. And yes. now there's some real issues there. Um, early on, I mean, I'll, I'll be fully honest, when I was a college student and I was starting to get involved with Ed and Lorraine, I did things like psychic photography and EVPs. Yeah. And yeah, sure. I believe that I drew the line eventually and said, all right, well, if I'm going to a historical site and doing this, I could be asking for trouble. So I kind of like shut that down. Um, that's my opinion. Um, I think it can, a lot of the same things can occur when we go looking and hunting for this stuff. Um, yeah. And I think that's why a lot of people see it as a, as a hobby, if you will, or they're curious or they're trying to make sense of, you know, the world they live in. I get it. Or they're looking to see if there's proof of the afterlife, but then they bite off more they can chew and, and something could respond. That's, that's not human. Sure. And, 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 and I'm glad you mentioned that thing that, there's a lot of people, um, especially when they have people have describing whether whether it's a person or it's sometimes even a family unit, um, that people say, "Well, it's a mental illness," or "No, it's you know, it's or it's a haunting." And I say, "You know what? You can have both." Exactly. <laughs> you can have both things. One thing doesn't exclude the other. No, it you does can not. have a person there with mental illness untreated. Some you know, where maybe what's there is even aggravating the symptoms. You it doesn't mean that you. You know, one, it doesn't mean you they can't have the other. Sometimes it makes it worse. And as far as even um, when you're a paranormal investigator, you got to be really careful. This is personal safety <laughs> tip. Yeah. Um, don't worry about the ghost. You might have to worry about your client, you know, because. One of the, the cases I worked on in, in Massachusetts um, a couple of years back had both kind of tied in together. Okay. So I think this will be a, hopefully a good example of what you're, what you're talking about. I want to build upon that because it's totally true. I think we have that false dichotomy that it's one or the other, and it's not necessarily, it could be both. Mm -hmm. um, I was called into a home where admittedly the, the father uh, did have some mental health issues. Um, right. But the interesting thing is, even when he was not home, there was weird things the rest of the family would experience. And he was saying there was, you know, a ghost there or something to this uh, effect. And they were kind of passing off at first, well, dad does have some issues. Uh, he, you know, had some... Uh, diagnoses at that time. Um, but when he was not there, stuff would still happen. Now, unbeknownst to the, the mother and father, the children there, uh, the two boys did play with the Ouija board. They had all this kind of stuff going on. And the poor man uh, did have a, a pretty major mental health crisis and claimed he was being victimized by this thing, whatever it is in the home. And he okay. was actually institutionalized. Um, okay. I was called in at that point and I was a little reluctant when I was hearing the story. I, in my head, 
I said, all right, this is probably just a mental health issue, but I still mm-hmm. want to talk with the family and hear what they have to say. And what was interesting, they said, you know, can you take this Ouija board out of here, out of here and dispose of it for us? And I said, of course, I threw holy water on it and I got rid of it for them. And they asked if I could come back and bless the home for them. And I obliged and I said, you know, look, I don't know exactly what's going on here. I don't want to feed into it. This could be just a mental health crisis, but it is always a good idea to, to bless the home. You know, the home is to be our little church. So I had no problem with that after I got a blessing. Now, this is where it got a little creepy. So as this father of the family was institutionalized, the day I was coming to bless the home, so he's not in the home. He has no idea that all this mm-hmm. transpired. When the wife went to visit him that day, he knew that a priest was coming to bless the home because they told him. There you so, go. They. It's, they. It's a plural. Is. <laughs> so when that was relayed to me, when I came to do the blessing, I said, all right, this man clearly has mental health issues, but there's definitely a spiritual component here. And whatever he was experiencing could very well be real. And the family is also claiming to experience things. And now we kind of have that, that it, you know, once again, it's not empirical truth or anything, but we have that weird thing here that he doesn't know who I am or I'm coming to the home. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, 30 miles away, unfortunately, in a lockup facility for 30 days, trying right. to get these things under control. Yet he knows a priest is coming to bless the home because they told him. And I said, okay, I think this is a legitimate case at this point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Both issues yeah. going on here. This is not one or the other. There's clearly both going on here. Um, sure. It's just a, an awful thing to see and, and see the, you know, obviously, you know, the family's so stressed out because the father, of course, mm-hmm. is. Sure. That, that in itself that is, is very difficult. Very difficult. And then you have this back end problem where there's something there that I don't know why it was there. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was necessarily invoked because of the Ouija board. Was it already there? Was right. it something that was attacking the father because he was weakened because of his illness? Sure. I don't really know. Um, he made a good I'm, target. Yes, yeah, it'd be a great target. That's his weakness in his armor. Sure. And, you know, stuff like that you see when you work in the trenches, as, as you would know, since you've been involved. Um, and things like that, I know a lot of the, the naysayers and the skeptics and stuff will put it to bed and say, well, that's not evidence. But these are the things that you find a lot on cases where, you know, they're not weird coincidence, coincidences or there's these things that happen that are kind of, I mean, how do you explain them, I guess? Right. Exactly. And there's, I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is Dr. Gallagher. Yes. And yep. he mentions how at the very beginning when he got involved as a psychiatrist, strictly as a psychiatrist, Basically to diagnose, you know, if this person really needed an exorcism through the church or was this just a very mentally ill person? And he uh, describes where at the beginning he, some of these patients or that he was examining, they had personal knowledge about him. He says that there's no way this person could know this about him, his personal life. He says, I know for a fact there's no way that this person I'm examining on behalf of the church could have that knowledge. And he says that that was one of I, one of the first things that it's like, you can't, you can't rationalize that. Like what you exactly. just described. How does this person have this knowledge? Especially hey, it might be started, mentally ill, but when he started, especially because he's been doing that for many, many years, Yeah, you know, it's, before, it's before Google, it's before like people can, you know, really yes. actively mm-hmm. look up stuff. So um, yeah, I mean, right. 
that is things like that when they have this knowledge, this unknown knowledge. Um, yeah, it's right. very, very creepy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It is. Oh. It is. Like, that's what he was saying. And back then he said it was like personal stuff. Even if there yeah. was a Google, it was stuff that somebody tells you something like nobody knows that, whatever. It was things like that, that it was like made him pause and, you know, question like, okay. Especially at the beginning when he wasn't so sure about, you know, when you come from the medical mm -hmm. field where everything is strictly science. Exactly. And you're thinking this is just a case of somebody with untreated mental illness, maybe schizophrenia, who knows, and whatever. But um, and and uh, that's that's the thing that um, you know I, I get a lot of people that sometimes will you know contact me and you know I tell them you know I'm, I tell them one time I was interviewing a a young man he had put a group together in Washington State, and they went to one of those old asylums you know the 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 ones that have that they get bought over and people have tours and things like that. But, you know, they're supposedly very haunted old building and the owner allowed their group just to go in there by themselves. And he said on the top floor was where they kept the really violently uh, patients. This was the, 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 the ones that they could never let out. And supposedly him and another investigator had gone up there and there had been sightings supposedly of a tall shadow man, whatever. And he did that provocation thing. Oh no. <laughs> he says he saw, he says he saw something like a very tall shadow at the end of the long hallway. And he did that provocation thing. All right. He said that when they got back, it just so happened that um, where they were staying, they didn't stay in a hotel. They camped out. First thing he find out, a good majority of the material had not been recorded, whether it was recordings or film. Mm -hmm. Something, all of a sudden, all their electronic stuff, cameras, nothing had recorded. Okay, so they had to go back and tell this person, hey, look, the owner that had allowed them, we, most of our material has disappeared. He said after that, um, the group broke up. This is, you know, he gave me a more detailed he ended up going into a deep depression that took him 18 months to get out of. Oh my all right. One of the members died. I can't remember, but some weird because they were all young. They weren't like nobody was elderly. And he said, and the group broke up like, you know, everybody at each other's throat. And I remember when I interviewed him, he had finally come out of it. And, and I asked him, are you going to go back to it? And he goes, well, I'm still thinking about it. I'm not sure. But that, that taught me very well, never, ever to do that because he says that, it was right after that, that everything just fell apart for that group on a personal level and on a group level. So that's why I mentioned that as far as, you know, that sometimes uh, people to get, I don't know, more excitement. And well, I had a guest, my God, I can't remember his name is Ed. God, he wrote a book and he made a very good analogy. He says, sometimes when people do, whether it's Ouija or spirit communication, they really don't know what they're doing. He goes, just imagine you've got a cell phone and you throw it in a prison yard. <laughs> Who do you think is going to be the one that gets that that phone? It's going to be the baddest, meanest guy in there. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just think of it that way. I go, boy, that's that that, that that's a really good example. I, I I get it. I get it. You know, when you when you get like, hey, I want to open up communication. It's like who's on the other end of that? But um, let me ask you something, Father Maximus, for for um, people. Um, that I'd speak because um, 
that suspect that uh, either because they've been in a place they shouldn't, they've been around. But sometimes, like I say, you know how the the the, the collateral damage, the innocent bystander, you're in a group, you sure. go somewhere, you witness something, you're around somebody doing something. Um, is there something that people can do? Like, I want to say like a preventative or if they feel they start feeling that, uh, that weird, I'm getting, you know, whether it's nightmares, um, that I'm getting watched, the weird noises. Yeah, it, it's, it's tough, but you know, I always tell people, especially if they're thinking they're having some type of experience, um, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I come from a certain tradition, so I'm going right. to emphasize more of that, but, um, you know, I truly believe that the Holy Trinity is our, you know, our God. Uh, make the sign of the cross. Ask for the help of assistance, the assistance of God, uh, the help of one's guardian angel, things like this. Uh, call upon the mother of God, the Holy Theotokos, for protection. Um, those are the things that make the evil one tremble. Um, okay. You know, I, I don't think we can will these things away by ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think we can use, you know, folk magic, things like this. I think there's there's true darkness and there's true light. And I really yes. believe that true light is the light of Christ. And this is what dissipates that darkness. Um, yes. That's one of the reasons now I've never been a big proponent of really doing shows, but I'm doing more now. Um, mm-hmm. I feel as a clergyman, there's not enough of us talking about this. Yes. And I want to be honest with people and tell them there's kind of three things there. So to warn them not to meddle in this stuff, first of all, Mm-hmm. Second, if there is issues, hopefully to help them get an avenue for help. And mm-hmm. third of all, is to take this light of Christ that, that I've found, the pro great price, and bring it into this darkness, bring it into this chaos of this, you know, the paranormal world, if you will. Um, you know, we, we see certainly there are some clergy that talk in these particular areas, but uh, not enough. And I think a lot of them are unfortunately charlatans, self appointed, getting on the TV shows, all that kind right. of stuff. And they're, they don't have, I'm nothing special. I'm just a mere man, but I have the apostolic authority given to me by the bishop to partake in helping people where mm-hmm. someone else might call themselves a clergyman because, you know, we live in the land of the free. We can practice religious uh, face, whatever we want because of the the greatness that we have here, mm-hmm. but it's still self-appointed. Um, I cannot do things in the trenches to help people without the blessing of the church. And there's great power there because Christ, um, in our tradition, set forth the apostles to do this work. And one of the first things he did is he sent his disciples and his followers out in pairs to exercise people. (laughs) It's one of the first things that happened. And he gave them the authority over unclean spirits. And we carry that on to this day. What people most people don't realize is that when someone is baptized into the church, there's exorcism prayers, ancient ones that are read over that person. Mm-hmm. So everyone that is baptized essentially has received an exorcism. Um, the, the exorcisms like of you see in the movies and on TV and stuff, those right. are much more rare, but they do occur. But, you know, as a priest, I'm to feed the sheep with the Eucharist. I'm to preside and help them with confessions, uh, to baptize, to preach the gospel. Take all this light, all this good news, and bring it mm-hmm. into the chaotic world. And... You know, this is what I, I try to drive home is I respect other people's belief systems. I get it. But I really think there's a there's a, a way here. There's a methodology because it's um, a link to God himself and the grace of God that permeates through the church. So, of course, it can rectify and dissipate the darkness. Where outside of sure. that, 
you know, the grace of God can certainly exist. I'm not doubting that. But if people just kind of make it up as they go along, are they doing more harm than good? If I'm commissioned by the church to do this work, then I'll do it. If my bishop says pull back, then I have to pull back and I'll have the authority to do it. Where people are just kind of freelancers out in the paranormal world. Um, I've purposely kind yes. of, I've been asked to go on a lot of the, the, I guess you could say the paranormal ghost hunting shows. Mm-hmm. And I'm always very uh, thankful that they've asked me, but I've had to pull away and say I'm not interested because they're not about the light. It's more about right. the phenomena, the darkness, making you look cool because there'll be a priest on film praying. And I said, right. no, no, that's, that's not what it's about. We have to help people. We have to warn them and we have to try to bring light into the darkness. And that's not really what they're looking for at a production company. So I've yeah, I know they're, they're, they're thinking of the ratings. <laughs> yeah, the ratings. So, and, know, and, 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 and I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And, you know, and I'm going to say that I've said it before. I said, you know, contrary to what you see in these shows or in the movies. Okay. Um, when you're talking something truly malevolent. Okay. Because I know sometimes you will go to a place and it's just what I call regular dead people. It's a ghost. Maybe somebody's trapped, whatever. Well, if you're talking something really malevolent, I go, what it seeks is the corruption of the human soul. And it's got time on its side. If you think that the way it works is like what you see in the movies, that furniture starts flying around, I say, no, it can unravel your life in degrees, okay, to separate families to a million ways, okay? And the reason why I asked you that question is don't wait till like don't think that you have to that by the time you reach out is because you think you need an exorcism exactly. i think that people need to reach out when they first start realizing something's going on whether it's continuous nightmares um obsessive thoughts that they think aren't theirs you know oppression uh something don't let it go like totally out of control before you can go and seek help from a clergy somebody and you tell them, and hopefully, you know, you're going to get the right person on the other end that you tell them, look, I'm I'm experiencing something unusual. Um, I'm having very horrific nightmares continuously, or I'm hearing this, or uh, I'm thinking things that just, that's not me, or I'm hearing things. Don't let it go into a full-blown thing before you seek help, which is why I asked you, what can the person do? Um you know, don't let it get out of control, spiral out of control, if that's what it ends up being. Because yeah. sometimes I've heard of people that have endured years of things happening to them and in their home or with their families before they actually get to the point of getting intercession from a priest or anybody. Like you said, it could be any denomination. And of course, by then, a lot of psychological damage has been done to the individual and the family. Um, so... I tell everybody, you know, don't whatever you do, no no seclusion, because I've seen that a lot sometimes in some extreme cases where there's people, or especially the target person, definitely goes into seclusion. They isolate themselves. They don't go out. Sometimes they're the only ones that, for some reason, experience it. So even their own family member sometimes starts disbelieving them. And I go, it's like that division and conquer mentality. And a lot of people, and I and I would wish if you can't talk to it, a lot of people sometimes think that. Something like this can be so manipulative. And I beg to differ. I think that if we're talking here, something truly evil as an intelligent, it can manipulate 
family members or certain things to isolate one member away from the rest of the family. Have you I come would, across that? I would say, yeah, because I think it kind of starts more on the level probably of like almost like an oppression, you know, something yes. more level, lower level than, um, you know, it's hard to categorize this stuff, but almost there's different tiers, whether it's oppression, obsession, possession. And mm -hmm. it seems to take perhaps gradual steps, maybe yes. not all at once. So I think it does, if it's targeting one person, if not the whole family, it does have to isolate them. It has to, uh, people in the family think that person is crazy or they're making it yes. up. Because um, if it happens to everybody in the family, then it's kind of out in the open and, we, and they would know there's something more to it. Where if it targets one person, it can break them down. I think to the point where it really wants to influence them to self-harm or yes. you know something like we see on rare occasion like possession. Um, which I believe I've only seen twice, uh, right. but it definitely is a real phenomena. Um, and to you know, seek the spiritual ruin of that person—that's what it does. Mm -hmm. um, that's its whole uh, mo in this in this world um, yes. is to seek you know after people and cause ruin and destruction of the human soul. Um, so I have no doubt that it can isolate. Um, and you know, let's just face it—I mean especially if we're very skeptical, if you can imagine if you had say a brother or sister and, you know, they're claiming to have these things, right. you know, we're probably gonna say, Oh, they're just being crazy. They're looking for attention, whatever it is, right. that's going to further isolate them where this thing's going to attack them more and relegate them more to a spiritual battle that is very difficult to overcome. So, you know, I have no doubt I've seen that in cases. Um, you know, if it is one person that's targeted, it's often very, uh, very difficult to figure out if it's a true case or not, especially if, if the first one or two times you consult or go to see them, there's not the phenomena. Um, so all I can really do is just kind of document it and then see what happens from there. Um, I never mind praying over anybody or praying for them, yes. um, no matter what, because whether they're physically, mentally, or spiritually ill, right. our recourse is prayer. So that's not a big deal. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's very difficult in some cases to figure out what is going on and why that person is being isolated. But often more times than not, as the case goes on, like you were mentioning where people let it linger and go for a long time, mm -hmm. I think others will start to experience it because sure. that's when the phenomena physically might happen. Um, and now you're going to start getting the witnesses, but it's so bold at that point and so uh, ingrained in that person and that person is so broken down almost mm -hmm. like it's taunting them. Like it doesn't have to hide anymore. It can just do its thing. Yes. yes. Which is, which is completely frightening, but that's unfortunately what it does. And, and, you know, in the, the Orthodox church, we have, you know, 2000 years of literature that attests to this. We read the lives of the saints. When we read uh, the spiritual teachings, of course, Holy scripture and the different services we have for, um, you know, whether it's exorcism or, uh, blessing a, a place that is afflicted by evil spirits. Mm -hmm. um, this is all we understand as part of the spiritual battle that we go through. Um, and it, it is very frightening for those folks that are isolated yes. and singled out. Um, I saw once um, a, a poor woman that an exorcism had to be done over her. And she was very much into the ghost hunting and going to the sites and uh, the invocations and all this stuff. And it really caught up with her. And she was isolated for many, many months at least, probably the better part of a year before her uh, fiance actually saw anything happen. So they just thought really, you know, this was just strictly mental illness at this point. Okay. 
And then eventually it became where it was very, very bold. And it was now doing things in the presence of the fiance. So that's when they were like, all right, we have to reach out for help. And it required, I didn't do the exercise myself. I was still a layman at the time. Um, mm -hmm. Phenomena that happened. Um, this thing did not want to leave. And it made itself right. known during those prayers. Yes, yes. Let me ask you, and I think also one of my questions that the person or the family, whatever the case might be, the power of prayer in amongst themselves. Because sometimes people, I want to say, sometimes they give away their power too easily. Like they wait for somebody like you to come and rescue them. And it's like, you have power yourself, the power of prayer, Absolutely. the power of belief. I mean, and I tell everybody, you know, even for those people, you know, when everybody leaves, the paranormal group, the clergy, everybody packs up and leaves and goes home. You're still there. Yes. You're still there. <laughs> there. What do you think you're going to do all those hours and days and possibly weeks when whoever came to help you has gone back to where they live? You're still there. What do you plan to do? And that's what I'm saying. People, they don't realize sometimes their own power as far as the power of prayer and belief and um whatever it is that they need to do to have the how can i say if, if for lack of a better word like if everything's been cleared to keep it clear sure um and i think a lot of people sometimes think that clergy is the only that their prayers are powerful but that yours are not you know as a lay person as a regular person Everybody can pray. <laughs> Thank you. Everybody. Thank you. That's that, like that, there is power in your own personal prayer for Absolutely. yourself, especially like help. That's your, you know, your armor. That's your safeguard. That's your exactly. relationship exactly. with the divine. You know, that's your, yes. your yes. you're communicating with uh, the divine and, you know, with our church services or our personal prayer, these are all vehicles to obtaining the very grace, the very energy of God and being in communion with him. Um, you know, being illumined and uh, achieving uh, this divinization theosis, if you will, this communion with God. So, of course, we, we have to pray. And I always tell people that's our first recourse for anything, whether we're physically ill, mentally ill, spiritually ill, or we're, we're joyous, we're uh, down, whatever it is, prayer is always our recourse. That's our lifeline. And without it, it's we can't really fight the spiritual battle because we have no defense and we it's not that God is turning his face from us. It's we're turning our face from the divine because we're just not praying. We're cutting off that communication ourselves. Yes. Where, you know, it's always there. There's one of the, the fathers of the church I love. I think it's St. Peter of Damascus. And he talks about the grace, the love of God is like the rays of the sun. It shines on everybody unconditionally. But the problem is, we take like a dark blanket, we put it over ourselves and block ourselves from that divine energy, grace, love, all that, because of whatever reason we turn our back. God never turns his back on his children. So a lot of the stuff, it's it's we don't see it as such, but it's it's self-inflicted, even if it's done in a benign way, where if we open up that lifeline, it doesn't mean things are going to be easy. I mean, many of the saints we read about, they were attacked physically by demons because they were close to God. And the demons were angry because they weren't affecting the mind anymore. They weren't tempting via the thoughts. So then they started the physical assaults. Yes. And this is all stuff that we have in our, you know, our, our literature. Um, but yeah, without prayer, I mean, we're, we're not communicating with the creator as, as we understand. Right. Uh, so having prayer is first and foremost, you know, our duty as a ecclesial beings, if you will, mm -hmm. that's what we're bound to do. 
Right, right. And I think that sometimes people forget that they have that ability. Of course. Yeah. Personally. You know, as a matter of fact, I would think that that would be the most, one of the most powerful. But like you said, if you think that, you know, if you feel helpless, how's that? Uh, that yeah. That's, I think, one of the first battles that people lose. Father Maximus, it has been wonderful to speak to you. Oh, thank um, you. I'm hoping I'm going to get in touch with you for the new year for 2022 to bring you back. Do you have any projects, any books or anything planned? I know you, it sounds like you haven't written anything for a long time, but. Yeah. I, even back then, um, about 20 years ago, when I wrote the book for John Zaffis, um, once 2004 ish hit and it was released, I never really promoted it because I was starting to go towards the realm of, uh, you know, clergy. Mm-hmm. So I never even really promoted it. Um, right now I have been working on a book, uh, off okay. and on for the last couple of years. Um, I'm still negotiating, perhaps getting it published. Um, it's going to focus more on a specific area of this field, which is uh, disassociative identity disorder and yes. so-called obsession and possession. Um, yes. It's one of the final projects I worked on when I got my yeah, That is so interesting. So I'm hoping to get so that published. Um, I did a lot of work under the tutelage of a doctor, uh, a okay. medical doctor, and I had to actually pass this particular part of uh my project to get my master's degree and now i've like taken it and i've built upon it so i can hopefully make it into a a coherent book because i feel that um mental health providers don't obviously Mm -hmm. realize the importance of spirituality but i also realize that sometimes clergymen deny the existence of mental mental illness so it's kind Mm -hmm. of like a two-way street that needs to be bridged right there so i've been working on that um i do have a few other projects hopefully uh something more out in the open but can't really say right now, um, kind of some negotiations. Um, I'm hoping wow. you do a That is such a, for Eric, that, that, I mean, tell you something to me that that's that right there that you said the, the DID and the, uh, you know, whether you want to call it a obsession, oppression, possession, you know, are we talking two different things? One, you know, one being, yeah. you know, like I think they're two that could go in so many directions. And, and I wow. know, I know some doctors, not looking for that explanation when they've been treating patients with this type of uh, diagnosis have run into things that they realize there's a spiritual component to what's going on with this person. This is not strictly a mental illness or brain disease. And I find that now that, you know, maybe they won't put it in writing or in oh, no. <laughs> no. when you talk to some of the mental health providers, no. and, you know, they'll open up a little bit. I had yes, a professor that opened up and told me a little bit, um, how they thought it was so interesting that yes. I was a priest and I was studying psychology. And um, one of the, the things they were uh, you know, serving as a tutor on was a paper I was writing kind of on this topic. And they kind of opened up a little bit. And yes. they only had really one encounter in the, the clinical session, if you will. But mm-hmm. it kind of let, let them realize that, okay, maybe there's more to this. And maybe I shouldn't be such an egghead and deny the spirituality yes. end of it. And right. realize that life is a little more complex than we think. Right. <laughs> Once you get to know them and they're not being quoted for an article or something. They'll say, exactly. They're like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is off the record, right? <laughs> yeah. And I hate to say it, but it is what it is. Sometimes it's a career killer or you get stigmatized even within that, uh, you know, that area of whether it's psychiatry or medical or God knows. Um <laughs> Forget, they'll, they'll never be able to surpass it. So I know why they would be very careful with 
actually admitting that they've had cases where they're like, oh, you know, there's something going on here. Exactly. Beyond, uh, you know, I can, I can, I can give medication to this person, but there's something beyond what the medication can do. Yeah, there's a Absolutely. spiritual component to it. Again, thank you. I definitely, we gotta come back. We gotta talk more about that. Definitely. <laughs> Take care. I want to wish you a thank happy you. Thanksgiving, a Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Same to you. to you and your family. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. So wow. You could tell Marlene's going, oh, I want to talk to him about that. Well, I love this conversation with Father Maximus. I loved it. I loved it. Because you know what? Even before, uh, obviously, that he became, um, that he joined the priesthood, he was working in there um, strictly from the point of view of um, a writer, you know. And how can I say it? Um, he was, how can I say, he went in there, like he said, not to prove or disprove. It was just to collect information, to, it, it, it kind of like, it, it, it went from a college newsletter proposal to a full-blown, possibly writing a book, to going on cases, to getting to know Ed and Lorraine Warren firsthand. Um, talk about behind the scenes. Wow. I can understand why. As a young man, when he got that, he was like, whoa. But again, going back to um, what I was talking about, you know, things like that to me are fascinating because he's seen it from both sides. He started from a lay person's side. He's seen it now as a priest um, called in to help families that are, see what I mean? See what I said? When, when he meant, when people are really, really um, scared that they have something genuine or they believe there's something genuinely supernatural or going on. They are really serious about this. This to them is not like a game or, Hey, uh, can I appear on a show? Uh, blah, blah, blah. No. And people are really, really scared when something's really happening in their home to all of them or one of them or something. They're like, man, I just need help because a lot of them, believe it or not, besides, um, Stress of that kind can do terrible things to your mental health. I mean, not as this, but because you, uh, if you're a rational person, you're trying to square this. You're trying to figure it out. Like how? And you know what? Sometimes people know why this happened. In other words, they went to the wrong place. They hung out with the wrong people. They dabbled in the wrong thing. Uh, even ghost hunters, whatever, you know. So they, they kind of know. I know where this came from. I know the point of origin. But I'll tell you what. Sometimes there are other people that have no idea how this started happening to them. All right? Sometimes it's, okay, they moved into a new place. Mm, okay. They could think that the, 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 the traditional, I moved into a haunted house kind of thing. But you know what? You have other people who have been living in that same location for many, many years. They never had a problem before. 
nothing. They haven't dabbled or done anything uh, in anything. You know, I, I haven't been to the wrong place. I haven't been uh, working around with a Ouija board. I haven't, although the, the, the usual rundown of what did you do? Uh, and then things start happening. And sometimes the sources are, you know, I, I'm sure you've 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 had. Um, I'm sure if anybody has watched some of these paranormal shows, God knows there's a lot of them. You know, you'll have people that will curse a family, curse the land, put stuff in there in the location. There are some dark, um, magical practices where basically you use the soul of a dead or discarnate person, by the way, this is, I'm, we're not talking somebody's dead and went to heaven kind of, no, we're talking here that somebody that's gotten lost from after their death, whether they realize that they're dead or they're just caught in between. And basically they use the spirit as an emissary of destruction as a form of, of a curse. Okay. So that sometimes might be a source. I've heard of that. I've run across cases like that. Um, sometimes there's there's a, a a lot of point of origins of these things happening or why they start to invade that area okay and that's why i asked them don't wait if 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 you're that person or family or whoever that feels that first twinge of What's going on? Like, in other words, you've ruled out my imagination is running away with me, you know, whatever the case might be. Don't wait till it's a full-blown cockafest before you reach out for help. And everybody knows I wrote that book, Supernat uh, uh, Supernatural Safety, a Paranormal DIY book. And in it, I explain there's a lot you can do by yourself, okay, whether it's because... You know what? Everybody thinks of the clergy. You know, I need an exorcism. Okay. You want to start with a house blessing? Don't. In other words, don't let it snowball. You do have power. You are powerful in things that you can do to safeguard yourself and your home, your spirituality, your safety. Um, that you don't have to wait till, hey, you know what? I, I, I think that I might be oppressed or obsessed or somebody in my family is being affected. Um you know, sometimes there's a target person. Sometimes there isn't. Sometimes adolescents that I'm sure a lot of you have heard of the uh, the traditional poltergeist cases where there's usually some type of adolescent in the home. And uh, they're the ones that, uh, in other words, the they seem to be the ones that are targeted and they're, they're looked at as the agent, whether it's a dispersed telekinetic energy Okay. But in other words, that's why I asked them that. What can people do that don't wait till everything is coming apart? And the reason why I say this is I've got investigations where when you start talking to this family, sometimes weird stuff had started been going on for years. And sometimes they kind of got a hold of somebody because things for some reason for the last couple of months had accelerated, had ramped up. But then when you ask them, like, when did you first notice or when? And they'll say, well, you know, a few years ago, this happened. And you're like, a few years ago? Yeah, a few years ago. And 
this, this, and that. And you're like, okay. So don't wait for that to happen. Um, I mean, by this, I mean, don't, don't think that everything weird is, it's a ghost or something like that. But if you start feeling it and you pray, whatever you, whatever your religious belief is, that there's a lot that you can do on your own before you say, I need to get exercised or somebody in my family needs to get an exorcism. Okay. Because again, and I'm glad he mentioned it. A possession is a rare thing. All right. A possession is a rare thing. There's a lot of things that go on before that, that um, I want to say, what's the, what's what, what, you know what, that a lot of times it's almost like a fine line that you walk. It's between, do I let my imagination run away with me and assume that everything is a ghost or whatever, or demon or whatever? No, 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 no. But the flip side of that is that sometimes this disbelief in the power of God, of the divine, like he said, our power as children of God, of the divine, whatever. I don't, I don't, whatever, however you want to call it, okay, the creator, mm. that we, that we have that it's almost like we're very dismissive of it. And the flip side of that is that whether you want to think of evil as in the traditional, the devil, the pitchfork and the hell and all that. Okay. It doesn't have to be, but that there are things that are evil. Yes, I think there are. I think that there is the, the, if you want to call it the yin and the yang, the opposites of good and evil. And I know that sounds like, wow, Marlene, but why not? All right. Um, and that you would think, well, because sometimes uh, you will see historically or even in present day. I mean, you just have to read the headlines. People that do evil for the sake of doing evil. There's no there's no reason for it because sometimes, let's say, I want to I want to say one of the most profound evil there is, is killing another human being. But okay. Sometimes you see that murders occur. Um, love, revenge, passion, hatred, bullying, um, even greed, you know, uh, money. Uh, I, I want what this person has uh, or whatever. You know, they, they, there's whatever the, the, the reason is, it's a dark, it's a dark reason but it happens. But then you see where there's evil done just for the sake of evil. All right. Which a lot of times occurs sometimes stranger on stranger. There's, there's no connection. There's no love, no obsession, no hatred, no friendship that went South. There's nothing to be gained monetarily. Uh, no revenge. You know, you did me wrong or somebody and I'm out to get you. None of that exists. None of that. There's no passion there to so say, well, this person did this murder or this killing for that reason. It's just evil for the sake of evil. Some people could say, well, you know what, that person's mentally ill. Eh. Okay, yeah, you could have somebody that 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 maybe has got a, a severe mental illness that's untreated and does horrific things. I've seen that. I mean, as a matter of fact, some of the very horrific murders are committed by somebody that's profoundly disturbed. But there's a lot of other things that are done 
by what I call sane people. Some people would say, well, by the very fact that they committed that act, I would term them insane. But I, there, I think there's a lot of them running around, okay, that are sane. They know perfectly well the difference between right and wrong, and they do evil for the sake of evil. And if you want to say, well, what spurs them on? What feeds their soul by committing these acts? I do. For me, that 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 begs the question that there is evil that exists outside of us as when we end up doing horrible things. Okay. I've said a. You know, sometimes it's the corruption of the human soul that you can say, well, why Marlene? And so, you know what? Sometimes we can say why and why, and we'll never really get a good viable answer or explanation to that question. You know, why do something bad? Why cause agony? Why cause anguish? Why cause sadness versus making people happy? Why does that feed the soul of a person to do that rather than make a person people or humanity happy you know whatever you want to say and whether it's an individual or a group of people or the humanity at large why one thing versus the other i don't know i just don't know i wish i did know but that in some cases um there is in in I guess my point being that for all those, for all the, um, and, and, and I know in a lot of these paranormal shows, you know, of course, having a just a genuine, you know, regular dead person is not exciting enough. So everything's got to go demonic or whatever. It's like, I, I don't think it's that common, but at the same time, it's like, they've kind of glamorized it almost the appeal of the forbidden. Like, wow, if you're going to get haunted, let's go for the big guns, man. If I've, oh, That must be so exciting. Maybe, maybe I'll get a show to come out and film me. And people don't realize what they're asking for. It's like I pointed what I was talking about with Father Maximus. When everybody picks up their whatever they've got, their cameras, their microphones, their computers, their laptops, all their stuff and leave and go home. If you've conjured something, asked for something, invited something because you thought it was exciting and then you're left there in that space, I guarantee you, you're going to come to, if it's genuine, you're going to come to regret that, that desire very quickly. You know, that thing about be careful what you ask for. And you can say, well, what's the worst that can happen? I'll just move. Yeah, you could if you can, and better cross your fingers that that whatever it is is not attached to you or your family. Because I've had I, I did investigations like that before. They, the people were not only moving out; they were moving out of the state. They were leaving to another state. And you know what they called us for? <laughs> they called us to make sure <laughs> that whatever it was didn't follow them. Okay. And you know what they told me the first tip off they got? They said that when they bought this house, the property, they said that the, um, the property owners, they said that, you know, left angels, ceramic angels, angels, 
statues of angels, things of angels everywhere. The garden inside, they left it behind. They took all their furniture, but the house was plastered with angels of of every form, size. And you would think, well, you know what? If you're an if you're if if you're into collecting angels, you would just take your angels with you, or give them away, or donate them, or sell them. On a, you know, have a big garage sale. Hey, if you're into angels, I got plenty of it. They said they left everything, and that later on, the real estate agent told them this after the fact. Says that she goes over there. She, by the way, the real estate agent was Jewish and his family was Christian. And before they went to the closing, they pulled her into a prayer circle. They kind of like said, no, you're going to do this prayer with us. And they, they had this big prayer going on about that, about the closing and about this. But she she later on told him it was like almost like a prayer of desperation. And then later on, of course, his new family, which is the one we came at the tail end when they were moving out. Um they kind of started putting two and two together after the fact of whatever was there had been there before. All right. And yeah, that was, that's a whole nother case. But uh, my point being that, um, that sometimes people uh, get into things and then it's like, they can't run away far enough or quick enough or far enough or whatever to get away from it. You know, in other words, moving sometimes is a solution, but sometimes it's not. Uh, it is what it is. So, again, for those of you who want to go into paranormal work and you really, you know, you've maybe you've done some trial runs with some paranormal group. I would tell you, regardless of whatever your religious background is, if you have one, because nowadays... I would tell you that you need to be well-armed spiritually. As a matter of fact, I would even have a go-to person. And by this, I want to say this. By this, I don't mean a psychic within the group. Because sometimes that person, okay, can, can might not be able to help you. Okay? You need to have a go-to person similar to what Father Maximus is. Besides the fact that you like, you've got some type of spiritual like armor on. All right, you have a go-to person that you could call up and say, "Hey, I went on this case and this is happening," or uh, "I have this feeling," or blah 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 blah. Because I hear a lot of times these investigators they rely on their in their their in-home psychic, and it's like you know what psychics can get attacked psychics can be wrong psychics can be manipulated i've seen it i have seen it all right so that's that's marlene's uh, marlene's cautionary tale if you're gonna go into this um and you're really serious about it all right you need to have your your ducks in a row because you think, man, what are the chances that I'm going to go on a case and it's going to be dark or it's weird or something's going to hitchhike home with me? And you know what they call it? You know that thing about beginner's luck? I've seen it happen. And it's not beginner's luck. It's called greenhorn luck. Because if you go on a case that's got something intelligent, and it doesn't even have to be demonic. I'm not even going there. But something 
that they that you say, man, how would they know? Who's the one that doesn't know nothing about nothing? They know. They know who to target. It happens again. This thing that they sometimes they're tied to a certain place. Ah, forget that. Forget that. Throw that out the window. All right. Just the very fact sometimes that a group is going in to investigate a location, whether it's historical or a home or whatever, you are putting out an all points bulletin for any free floating discarded to show up. All right. So that's why I laugh when people start getting all these things and they're like, well, it's grandpa, it's uncle Jed, it's the guy that got killed on the corner. It's like, you don't know. So when you're out there trying to communicate, whether it's an EVP, record them and everything, everybody, every discarnate that wants to be acknowledged, that's probably coming in because some, if not all of you guys have some type of light on that can see them, hear them, something, or that they could, they're coming in like, when you do a paranormal investigation, don't ever think that you're going to be limited to. And by the way, you could go to a location that's got nothing, but the very fact that you are opening up communications or hoping to communicate, you will bring them in. You will bring them in. And a lot of people, people don't realize that there's a lot of, People, dead people, how's that, that are confused, they're scared, they might not be aware that they're dead, they suspect they're dead, but it's almost like maybe they die suddenly, or they're scared of the afterlife, or they didn't even think there was an afterlife, and here they are, and they just want somebody to tell them it's a bad dream or whatever, hey, uh, it's, it's a, it could be a million things, okay, that happens. So, again, if you're going to go into this work, you need to find Father Maximus <laughs> as your go-to person. <laughs> if you don't have somebody like that already. And by, again, do not count on somebody in-house. Yeah, if you have a good team leader, great. If they have somebody outside of the group, a spiritual person, great. But do not. Do not because I've seen it. I've seen it more than once where that in-house psychic slash helper gets compromised just as well. And sometimes they get, they get pulled into, they get sucked into the same dark, whatever that, uh, that it happens. It just happens. Okay. Now let me, let me get off my sofa. Anyway, guys, I hope you like this show. I really loved it. I love speaking to Father Maximos. And um, and I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna put this in at the end because it really doesn't have anything to do per se with the paranormal, mm -hmm. but um, you know what I, I think that uh, a lot of times we think of evil or bad things happening or supernatural things happening as only in the setting of a paranormal investigation, a haunted house, an asylum, the haunted prison, all these things. All right. And, that's not the case. You can run across whether it's an evil entity or something, any place you go, okay? You could go into the most, you could go into a field and you could run across an elemental or <clears throat> a dark entity that will try to piggyback on your butt. 
and you won't be none the wiser. And that's why I'm saying that um, what, whatever your spiritual or religious persuasion is, because I'm never, I would never say one is better than the other, especially in, in present times, I would say you need to have, you need to have your spiritual armor on just, just about <clears throat> most of the time, because you never know when you're going to run across it. And I'm sure sometimes people have run across people that they look at them and they go, man, there's something wrong with that person. That person's like a bad person or an evil person. It's just something wrong the way they look that you're, that you know, there's something <clears throat> inside of you, excuse me, that gives off a warning bell saying, be careful, be careful of this person or be careful of this place. And those things are not planned. They can fall in your lap in the least expected moment. And sometimes you're by yourself. Sometimes you have your family with you. Sometimes you have your children with you. Okay. In other words, be prepared. All right, guys, it's been great. Please come back next week. I have a lot of great guests coming on a lot. Um, like I said, I'll probably the last two weeks of December, I don't schedule any guests. I'll just, let me see what I do. Pre-record something because it's just too crazy. My schedule, people are enjoying their holidays and spending it hopefully with friends and family and having a good time, keeping their fingers crossed that 2022 is going to be a good year, better year, you know? And um, yeah, and I've got a lot of great people coming on again. Go to MiamiGhostChronicles.com, MarlenePardo.com. If you want to listen to any of the show's podcasts without commercial interruption, uh, you could uh, find the links there or, of course, to any of the podcast platforms. If you have a preference, you can find us wherever you go. There we are. We only Not only do I have the videos on YouTube, I have the same videos on Rumble on BitChute. I'm all over the place. Okay. <laughs> uh, so again, guys, take care. You're all absolutely wonderful.